Welcome to the Talking Shift Podcast. My name is Cody Greer. Alongside me, as always, are my co-hosts, Trace Waney. Hello. And Kayla Bailey. Hello. This week, we pick back up on Episode 2 on our two-part series on The Hemi. Now, let's dive right on in, Shift Heads. Beginning in 1968, Dodge had the Scat Pack, which offered three cars. The Charger, called the Clean Machine. The Cornet RT, called the Time Machine and the Dart GTS called the Compact Scat. So I like how we mentioned the time machine and we've mentioned DeLorean all in the same podcast. Kudos to us. It's important. You yeah. Know, you know what? They really just should have used the Cornette. Yeah. Would have gone faster. Yeah. They probably wouldn't have broken down as much. Probably not. No, it probably wouldn't. <laughs> Buying a base model version wasn't enough to get you into the club. The car also had to do the quarter mile in 14.99 seconds or faster. That's still pretty quick. Keep in mind that this is still, not, that this is 1968 when the Scat Pack time started. So a 14.99 and less was pretty fast. If you consider what everything else was doing. I mean, that's, that's still a good time today, honestly. You know, the cars that weighed 3,500 pounds. It was a whole other world. Could you imagine putting them on a little bit of a diet back then, what they would have put out? Can you imagine if they were on tires that were like what we have now instead of bias plies or polyclass? You bring up a good point about the tires. That's something that I think doesn't get talked about enough when these cars is the rubber, the rubber on them. I mean, that's part of the reason why I'll bring it back to a NASCAR topic that people were afraid in the first Talladega race. They were afraid because one, the track was massive. It was huge. It was bigger than Daytona. It's a 2.66 mile track all banked and uh, the speeds were out of this world and people were afraid that the tires at the time weren't going to hold up to the speeds which is a valid concern I would say so great point about tires and technology because they certainly haven't caught up yet yeah the scat pack cars were easily identified because they had bumblebee stripes buzz bumblebee stripes were vertical stripes in the quarter panels and across the trunk lid Membership in the Scat Pack Club cost $3 and got you some cool swag, such as a poster, a jacket patch, a bumper sticker, a parts catalog, and who can forget that monthly newsletter? So to bring it back as well, the fact that they called the Dart the Compact Scat just sounds like little poop. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's not one, I mean, I enjoy Scat Pack. Great, great marketing, great everything. But bringing in compact scat into the conversation just makes me think of little rabbit droppings everywhere. That's what the dart was. Yeah. <laughs> Until Mr. Norm convinced Dodge that he could fit a 440 under the hood of a dart GTS where they, where they came up with his special uh, GSS, the Grand, Sport, Grand Spalding Sport, and named for his uh, special dealership in Chicago, it, was, it changed the game. And then he was able to convince the engineers to build him 40 Hemi Dodge Darts in 1969. And that was a whole, 1968 and 1969, it was a whole other ball game from there, but they were designed only to do one thing, and that was to race. I want to know something. Where's the Scat Pack Club now? I own a Scat Pack, and I want a $3, I want $3 swag. I want a jacket patch and a bumper sticker. Let, let's hit with inflation there, Cody. You'd probably be sitting at $300 now. <laughs> well, you know, 
At the time, yeah. yeah at, at, the, at the time, gas was also 36 cents a gallon. We're, we're around 636. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, premium. <laughs> Here we go. What do you want? You want your uh, flat bill with a bumblebee on it? <laughs> oh, yes. that'd be what you'd get now. I'll take it. And some uh, Puma shoes. <laughs> like Ferrari and BMW shoes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just bumblebees uh, on them. <laughs> That's what you get. Off-brand looking bumblebees. <laughs> you just basically just described Kyle Bush walking around the racetrack in Puma shoes and a flat bill, <laughs> but his has an M&M on it. Yeah, he's pretty ugly too, so it doesn't uh, help him. Well, Plymouth had their own uh, club like the Scat Pack. It was a little more sophisticated, and they called it the Rapid Transit System. Is this like a like a train? No, it, it sounds funny, but it was to bank on the idea that Dodge had the RT, which stood for uh, road and track, and so they were kind of trying to reach in somewhere with some other marketing and steal the RT for rapid transit. This this sounds like a subway system under a city. Well, it's not. It's Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> rapid transit doesn't refer to how fast they get the packages to you. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't use UPS or anything. Did they rapid use a rural transit. mail carrier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a Cornet. Cornet. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't take off until 1970 when Plymouth realized that Dodge had more of a fan base due to the Scat Pack Club, and Plymouth wanted something similar. The rapid transit system was designed to capture the imagination of a generation obsessed with drag racing and street and strip cars. Plymouth explained the rapid transit system this way. As the name implies, it's a system, a total concept in transportation that goes beyond eight pistons and a steering wheel. The rapid transit system is racing at Daytona, Riverside, Cecil County, and the race cars themselves, dragsters, super stocks, opal stalkers, the essence of high-performance machinery. Along with this came the rapid transit system caravan, which was essentially a traveling car show with race cars. So, do you think perhaps this is where they got the name later for the Grand Caravan? I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) I figured out that Iacocca reached back to something cool to put on a van. I mean, bands were cool in that time, man. Yeah. The 2000s, okay. <laughs> I won't say cool, I'll say popular. How about that? 1970s, this would be the Scooby-Doo mystery machine van rolling around, really. Oh, there was no mystery, they were smoking dope. <laughs> <laughs> so the very, to explain how popular these, art, these rapid transit system caravans were, in 1970, the first one in New York City had over 73,000 people attended. Imagine a car show with race cars that was 73,000 people have been to. Have you ever been to a car show 73,000 people were at? Probably cruising the ghost. That's fair. <laughs> I, well, I think, I don't think it's quite that many, dude. That's probably the largest one I've ever been to. I couldn't, 73,000, that's the size of a football stadium. That'd be like having a, that's like, I mean, I think SEMA every year brings in about, 80,000 or so people coming through, if not 100,000. But those are all people who are in the business. Yeah. This is regular people going to go see some Plymouth at a dealership. Sure. So the Hemi cars from 1966 to 1971 are absolutely American legends. They also tend to cost a premium even without the original engine. Last year, an extremely low mile 71 Cuda convertible sold at auction for $4.8 million. Trade, was this a Hemi car? Yes, but also it was one. Out, it was a convertible, wasn't it? It was one out of four that were ever made that production year in that color. 
Wasn't it? That, that color, yes, but not one of the four Henry convertibles. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that is a super rare example. Only one of a few. Looking through Bring a Trailer, we can see some completed auctions from the past five years. A 68 Hemi Roadrunner sold last year for $85,000, while a similarly equipped 440 plus six sold for 58,000. If we look at the even more sought after Dodge Charger, these values increase further. Bring a trailer lists a sold auction earlier this year for a Hemi equipped 68 Charger at 130,000. So at this time too, so Going back with my family being in cars, my papa actually had a 68 Hemi Charger and it was my grandmother's daily driver, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories is my grandfather, uh, my grandmother driving my mom and my uncle to school and they passed this Corvette. It was a 61, 62 Corvette and the guy revved on it like he was gonna race them. And of course, my grandfather being a mechanic, souped it up a little bit more. And my grandmother or my uncle claims, which he's seven years old at the time, that they beat him in a drag race down the road, which I can't picture my tiny 71-year-old grandmother hauling ass in a 68 Hemi Chet Harger, but... I think you could probably get close with it, but... Different time, man. Way different time. Now let's discuss something not a lot of people do when they talk about something rare. Why are these cars rare? Because nobody bought them. Why did nobody buy them? Because a Hemi was $778 option on top of the $3,500 base price of a 1970 Plymouth GTX. That sounds cheap today, but the average household income in 1970 was about $9,800. It wasn't cheap. Also, you didn't get the usual five-year, 50,000-mile warranty on the Hemi. You got a one-year, 12,000-mile warranty. The Hemi Cuda convertible mentioned earlier is valued so high because of its rarity. Less than 40 Hemi Cuda convertibles were ever produced. But why is that? It's because so few, few people wanted them back then. We've already established that the 426 Hemi was a race engine for the street. Most who purchased them bought them to race. Convertibles generally have issues due to lack of stiffness, so that they do not do well with a lot of power. There's so few high-performance convertibles out there because they handle like a wet rag. <laughs> Honestly, that's the way they, they feel so sloppy because of lack of stiffness because there's no roof keeping the front and back together yeah. like there should be. Well, you know, too, convertibles at this time, like, that's that's asking a lot for that period of engineering to make that work correctly all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of moving parts. I mean, hell, convertibles today don't even, they still leak and they still have issues. Yeah, they still whistle when you're driving down the road and everything else. Yeah. Another fun fa NASCAR fact for today. NASCAR actually had a convertible series. They did. Had a convertible series. Until when? I don't know the exact date, but it did not last long. No, it was in the 60s, yes. though. And it was, it's, uh, there's, I mean, the listeners can go look it up online. Just Google NASCAR convertibles. You can see Lee Petty. You can see Richard Petty. I and mean, they all, they all raced in that series. You can maybe even see Lori Petty in one. Really? I was yeah. hoping about that. Yeah. She's somebody else's favorite character from Roadhouse. <laughs> Not Roadhouse. Goonies? Uh, <laughs> the same, but different. Yeah. This version of the Hemi was available from 1966 to 1971, and then the elephant went into hibernation again. Cue the sad noises. 
What caused the Hemi to go into hibernation? 1972 was a major downturn in automobiles. It was the beginning of the Malays era, and the oil crisis wasn't far away. When the oil crisis struck, the price of gas doubled overnight. That sounds familiar. Suddenly, a 426 cubic inch V8 with a dual four barrel carburetors were no longer wanted. Also, insurance companies began to catch on as to what was a risky car to insure. Fast cars were no longer cheap. Hi, Shiftheads. I'd like to talk to you about something that's very important to us here. And it's one person and everything that they've done to help us get to this position. It's Tyler Gibson, graphic designer. There's no one I would trust more to put together images of things that I want to put in other places. Tyler Gibson has these goals. As a graphic designer and artist where creativity is expected and appreciated. And his approach, he wants to help his clients and their brands meet their potential. And according to him, he's going to continually challenge himself to deliver the most simple and effective, efficient, and innovative solutions possible. Uh, he's helped us, and he can do anything that you want. Do you want a picture of yourself as King Kong climbing the side of a building? Yes. He can do it. Do you want him to help you uh, create a logo for what you're working with? Yes. Do you want him to help you advertise your business in a more professional way? Nobody can do it better than him. If you need his assistance or any of his things that he can do for you, please reach out to him at creativetyler.net. Or you can call him by phone at 601-209-9155. Give him a call. You'll be happy that you did. So did you guys know that for 72 they were supposed to introduce the uh, ball stud Hemi? Y'all heard about that? The what stud? The ball stud Hemi. It's because of the shape of the valves uh, in the head. Uh, then we're going to use it as a method to get rid of the, uh, to cut down on the amount of V8s that Dodge had over multiple platforms. It was going to get rid of the 383 and the 440. You'd be able to get it in two sizes, a 400 or a 444. Jesus. In these cars. <laughs> that was good. That was the plan just to keep it going, keep pushing. Yeah, I just go further. I just looked at a photo of it. The valve head covers on it could, you could turn that over and we could, Cody could use that as a bath. I mean, it would be great. Yeah. It'd be a nice size tub for him. You know, this brings up a, a, a great topic. What would have happened had the oil crisis and all this not happened? Like, how far would they have went, really? Okay. Could have thrown a 535 underneath the hood. <laughs> I think the problem that we'd have run into is how far can you really go with a carburetor? Because there wouldn't have been any incentive to develop the digital and electronic stuff that we have now that causes okay. all these massive power outputs. But I do think that this changeover was the first twinkle in somebody at Dodge's eye for where we are and what we'll be getting to in our next topic, the multiple variations of the Hemi in multiple sizes that we have now. Which brings me to this next part. When the Hemi awoke again, the world was a whole different place. The Hemi itself had slid down from a 7 liter to a 5.7 liter, and it was no longer a true hemispherical head engine. Now it was computer control, had coal pack ignition instead of a distributor. So you're telling me that the new Hemis are not actually a Hemi? Yeah, the only one that's actually anything close to a Hemi is a 5.7 liter. The rest is marketing. So you mean to tell me when he asks, hey, they got a Hemi in it, that it's not a Hemi? The, one, the truck he was asking about did have a Hemi. The oh. 5.7 liter Hemis were closest thing, closer to a Hemi than any of the rest of them. We'll get to that, though. I feel ripped off. 
Lastly, the new Hemi made good power. That's important. I can already hear you guys out there disagreeing. Keep in mind, until 1972, companies rated power with gross, meaning that just the engine itself with no accessories hooked up. That's how they rated the engines back then. It was just what did the engine make, not what did the engine make in a car with an accessory belt with everything running. What did it actually make? Yeah, that's what it made on the uh, on the rack while you had it running there, yeah. hooked up to the machine without it being in a car. Yep. After '72, it was the net rating, which is what the engine produced with full running gear, and that's why looking at numbers from 1972 is so much more depressing than looking at numbers from 1971. That's how you have a '72 Super Sport Camaro that made 100. And, 50 horsepower compared to the year before when they made 225. You're talking about a 30% reduction in what the power reading was just because of the method used to read. Perspective is everything is what you're telling me. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So this engine first debuted in the 2003 Dodge Ram. The ad campaign was genius. All people our age who watch TV at this time remember comedian John Reap leaning out of a car at a red light and asking the truck next to him, that thing got a hemi? This new Hemi would go on to be available in Ram trucks, Jeep Grand Cherokees, Chrysler 300Cs, and the Dodge Charger returned the second time and is still available, the 5.7 Hemi. Now, most of you may not know this, and some of you probably don't want to know this, but the Charger has been back before. Mm -hmm. This is the, I know, this I was, is the I, third iteration, its second return. Uh, any of you guys ever heard of the... Uh, the Charger from the 80s? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've seen one oh, in Charger. Old the Charger and Challenger. No, they they oh. did both in the 80s. I've seen a 80s model Charger at a Walgreens, and I saw the badge on the back, and I was like, that's that's not real. <laughs> that, that was whenever Chrysler, that was the beginning of Chrysler's uh, partnership with Mitsubishi for their captive import program. The Challenger did return in 1979 and last until about 1985 as the uh, both the Dodge Challenger, the Plymouth Colt, and the Mitsubishi Stereo. Let's, as a Challenger owner, we don't talk about those years. So the Dodge Charger, however, was pretty cool. That was more based on a uh, kind of almost like a fox body Mustang. The late great Carol Shelby worked on those. There, you actually could get a Shelby Daytona Charger in 1985. I wonder, I wonder why they weren't as popular. I but mean, they did pretty well for what they were. It was just a different time with a different kind of power subset. Uh, if anybody's ever seen the, the uh, great cult movie flick, The Wraith, the car at the beginning that's racing uh, the director of The Notebook in his Corvette, that's a, uh, <laughs> that's a Shelby Daytona Charger. The director of The Notebook. I'm not kidding. No, no I know. A, I'm serious. That's him. <laughs> yeah. Him and his mullet and his everything. He directed The Notebook. He was in Face Off also. Mm -hmm. he, was, yeah. he was the brother that wore the leopard skin jacket. It was fun. You know what? Uh, we, we need more restos in the 80s Chargers. All shift heads out there, if anybody has an 80s Charger, please send it to us. We'd love to see it. Now we're now we're fully, we're all in on the 80s Chargers now. I was out at first, now I'm in. It, it straight up looks like a fox. It does. It does. <laughs> at this point, I would be absolutely interested to see what rear drive vehicle made by Chrysler in the past 20 years has not been offered with a 5.7 liter Hemi. But the 5.7 Hemi is not the end of the Hemi story. Not by a long shot. In 2005, the 6.1 liter Hemi was made available in the SRT8 versions of the Charger, Chrysler 300C, and certain Jeeps. This engine made 425 horsepower. That's more than the original Elephant motor and net rating. 
I remember these SRT8s, man. Oh, they were so like they were so cool when they came out. Oh yeah, yeah. You had the nice badge on the back that said SRT8 on the back, and it just looked good. What about the lesser forgotten SRT4 Neon? Hmm. Oh yeah, but the SRT was trying to do all the cool stuff at yeah. this time. They were the Street and Racing Technology Division at Dodge. Didn't uh, the Vipers had the SRT10 too? Didn't they? the Viper was was built by SRT? Yeah. That was their that was their original that, yeah <laughs> that led without it without Carol Shelby's work with Dodge we wouldn't have the Renaissance at Dodge that we're in now yeah they don't like to acknowledge piece of it oh yeah yeah there's a reason it's called the, there were, there's a reason they called it the Viper oh yeah it's the closest thing to Cobra the Cobra it's it's relative well then in 2007 the 6.4 liter 392 was made available as a crate motor from Mother Mopar. In crate form, it was rated at 525 horsepower, and in 2011, it was made available in the Charger and Challenger SRT cars. In 2015, Dodge brought back the Scat Pack. This time without your patches and your poster and you your know, newsletter. And your newsletter that you have to subscribe to for $3 a month. You know, I really would have loved a newsletter and all this cool stuff for dollars well, because who doesn't love mail brought to you by <laughs> dodge delivering the mail yeah. dodge mail service in the late 60s the scat pack was a special catalog you could order parts out of from mopar back then they sent you a nice little super b decal now you got the decal some stripes cool wheels big brakes and a 485 horsepower engine you know i really wonder if this if that engine puts out more than 485 because the Dodge kind of has a history of fibbing as, oh, yeah. as far as what the actual power output for their motors do. Well, we've already discussed that the Hemi that is believed to have been underrated. I know for a fact there are people who have dyno tested these 60 year old engines and even now they've dyno tested at 430 horsepower, 440 horsepower instead of the rated 425 gross rating. Lastly, the most powerful of the Hemi's debuted as a 6.2 liter V8. There were two variations, the Hellcat 6.2 liter and the Demon 6.2 liter. The Hellcat debuted in 2015 with a supercharger and some other goodies and made a supercar respected 707 horsepower. I think, if you, if you don't know what a Hellcat sounds like, please do yourselves a favor, get on YouTube, get on Google, and listen to one. The 6.2 liter motor and these are great, but you don't hear it. You know what you hear? The wine. The wine. Yeah. That's all you hear. It's an amazing sound. I didn't do it justice there, but it's a great sound. It's a good impression. You, you it actually sounded like a dying cat. You, you have to do motor impressions for the rest of these. <laughs> <laughs> that is your new job. But for Dodge, as always, guys, it's never enough in 2018 dodge bestowed upon us the demon the engine itself is pretty much the same as a hellcat the difference as always is size and it was the size of the supercharger sitting on top keep in mind the average supercharger the supercharger size for a hellcat's 2.8 liters the demon got a 3.8 liter supercharger on top of an already 6.2 liter v8 also, one of the cool little things that Dodge gave out with the demons. The demon, the demon crate. The demon crate. 
you pay one extra dollar and you get this. Yeah, you get so much with the demon crate. I mean, skinny tires, a tool set, mm -hmm. uh, a new ECU that lets yeah, you run race gas. Let's, let's talk about that race gas. Yeah, this monster put down 808 horsepower on this race gas or pump gas, whatever you want to call it. And when running race gas, it made 840. As far as I know, this is the only factory spec American automobile that can pick up the front tires off the ground on a launch. Now we're talking all stock, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's insane to really think is. that you can buy, you can go to a dealership and buy, buy a car that will give you a Dominic Toretto wheelie and say family at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And let's not even, let's not forget the fact that you know, they only sold these for one year in 2018. You have to prove that you actually own one of the handful of the few that they made. It was only a few hundred to buy any of this, the demon specific parts from Dodge. That massive hood scoop, you can't buy one of those hoods from Dodge unless you can prove that you own one of the cars. You can't buy that supercharger unless you can prove that you own one of those cars and need it for a repair bill. Well, let's not, let's not also forget that you have to get the demon up to a certain amount of miles before you can even unlock all of the power. So like if you buy one off the lot, you have to drive, like they incentivize you to drive it because if you drive it more, you get more power. Like, I mean, come on. Dodge knows what they're doing. Dodge is, as we said before, right now, they're the only automotive group who's having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say nothing but a good time? Yes, ain't nothing but a good time. And you know, you talk about the demon but even now, they have the super stock that's come out this past year. And I even read an article recently that Dodge is slowly sunsetting the, everybody's slowly sunsetting the V8. But they're coming out with a final phase of the Challenger that's going to run strictly on E85. Now, what is E85? Corn. Oh. <laughs> And that's for the higher burn, right? Yeah. It'd be really funny the fact that we're riding around in Hemi cars, running on corn when Hemi came, cars and racing and everything came from hauling corn whiskey. Exactly. Yeah, look, life comes around every single time. And they're, I think that's going to be the last big break for the Challenger. And they're trying to put it over a thousand horsepower. Imagine going to it. What a time we live in where you can go buy a car at a Dodge dealership and say, you know what? I want a thousand horsepower. What can you give me? You know what? That thing only has 700 horsepower. That is not enough. Do you have anything with more? I want a thousand horsepower and I want those yellow splitter guards left on it. You shut your door. <laughs> no, they're going to put pink ones on there. So I heard they were doing that. They those are worth even more money. Yeah. Yeah. Caleb, they need to. Let's talk about that for just a second. We're gonna we're gonna go on Dodge tangent really quickly. So Dodge, for all our Challenger owners out there, take your splitter guards off, please, for the love of God. You don't look cool. Stop doing it. So Dodge realized this was a thing, the yellow splitter guards, and they turned them to pink because people were keeping the yellow ones on their cars when they were meant to take them off right from the dealership. And now what? Now we have a. Now you have pink splitter guards that are worth a premium because they only did it for a little while. Yeah. They're People worth more treat money. it like a collector's edition. Of for sorts. a piece of plastic that yeah. slips over a little stub on the underside of your splitter. Yeah. People are selling them on eBay. Uh, you can go to eBay and look up Challenger pink splitter guards, and they're going to be more expensive than the yellow ones. That's <laughs> insanity. It really is. 
But let's get into something else a little bit off tangent. Let's talk about what Mopars we know of that have been major players in pop culture. Uh, I think first off, it's easy to talk about the General Lee. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is probably one of the most famous Mopars ever. That's you can go. What about you guys? What else uh, do you think of? Like I said earlier, I mean Nash Bridges and that orange Barracuda. Who was who's that that was in Nash Bridges? Uh, same guy from Miami Vice. Don Johnson. Don Johnson. Don Johnson yep. was in there. And uh, you got half of Cheech and Chong in there too. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and say the obvious. Fast and Furious. Dom Toretto, sixty-nine yeah, Charger. Yeah. That was a seventy. Seventy. Yeah. Excuse me. Seventy Charger. Dom Toretto, seventy Charger. Yeah. That's it. He's going to cut out his. Mistake there. And then, um, uh, not even to mention something going in a little bit more off tangent with that, the horror movie and book, Christine, by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Christine was a, was a uh, Plymouth Fury, a 1958 Plymouth Fury. Unfortunately, you couldn't get a 58 Plymouth Fury in red. They were only available in gold. Stephen King wasn't a big car guy, so he put a kind of a lot of things that you couldn't really get at that time. Like in the book, Christine was a four-door uh, red 58 Fury with a turbohydromatic transmission. And uh, those of you that are real up on terminology will know that a turbohydromatic transmission is a Chevrolet transmission. They don't do those. <laughs> you can't get that. The uh, Fury at that time was only available as a two-door, and you could only get the Fury in a uh, kind of a gold color. You couldn't get one in red. Yeah. Uh, but it's always important to talk about these. Uh, what are their hot culture? Emmys were there though. I know we hit the big, the big ones. Too fast, too furious. The yeah. 1970 Dodge Challenger that they raced the two Italian guys for. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Movie. And then you have the yeah, that's right. Uh, I feel like there were more though. There's probably know. more. And you want to know what? It's something crazy too. I'll bring it back to racing since we've talked about it a lot in um, the Hemi topic. We talked about it in our first two episodes how Dodge had come back to NASCAR in one. Well, Dodge's stint in NASCAR was actually pretty short. They left in uh, 2012, which is so odd to me, considering that all of this cool Hemi technology has taken off since, you know, what, 2011? And now it's nothingness. But Dodge does have a huge presence in NHRA, which is drag racing. National National Hot Rod Association? Correct. So that makes sense for... I mean, you can buy the drag package for the Demon. You can go on the drag strip. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dodge has always kind of been close to the National Hot Rod Association. When we discussed the uh, Superstock years, I neglected to mention that in 1963, a uh, regular guy, a normal blue-collar guy, went to Plymouth, bought their bought a Plymouth Savoy from there, had the 426 wedge engine, which is would go on to grow up and become the 440 V8. And this guy took it to the dealership by where he worked. They pulled the rear end out of it to swap it for a 410 low gear and some cheater slicks. That afternoon, this man and his wife put their luggage in the trunk of the car. They went to the National Hot Rod Association's National Championship where he raced on Saturday and Sunday and won for the super stock division and then him and his wife came back home in that same car with their luggage monday morning he went to the dealership they just set his stuff over to the side they put his car back together and he drove it on to work that morning amazing <laughs> just amazing that's the that's the lineage dodge is looking at when it comes to cars like the demon and the super stock and the jailbreak and all these options that you can do now so that's where we are and where we've been as a gearhead culture with the hemi 
As we're all aware, the end of the internal combustion engine is looming. Electric vehicles are bound to take over in the next 10 years. Until it happens, you can bet Dodge is going to be stuffing a Hellcat V8 into anything that'll sit still. Luckily, we still have Dodge leading the charge and bringing electric muscle cars to the gearheads. I am curious to see in this next generation, like you said, we know electric cars are coming. They're more and more. There's no denying it. What Dodge can do, if they've done all this with the V8, all this history with the Hemi, what kind of craziness can they put into an electric motor? I mean, the door is wide open. Absolutely. I want to, I want to see something beat the Tesla Plaid, and I think Dodge can do it. Who knows? One day Dodge may even, electric, may even mark an electric motor as a Hemi. Technology's changed, but there'll always be one question when you see a Dodge. That thing got a Hemi? And that concludes our two-part series on the Hemi. So guys, do we know more about the Hemi? I hope so. Yeah, a lot more actually. Now, does anybody change their answer for what they would take for a Hemi car? No, I'm still taking. For 1970, still taking a Cuda. You still want a Cuda convertible? Yeah, I mean, if I wasn't going Hemi though, I'd be I'd be driving a GTO. Hmm. I'm still stick on my Roadrunner. So you want to stick with the Roadrunner? I think I'll still stick with the GTX. Well, they're all fine options. What about you, fine listeners? What are you going to go with? Let us know on our social media pages. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ShiftHeadsCC and on Facebook at ShiftHeadsCarClub. And also, make sure to like and subscribe to us on any podcast that you listen to. At SGB Media. That stands for... Swaney. Greer. And Bailey. Media. Thank you, Shift Heads. Have a great evening.